They tried to stop my shine, but I said, hold up. Y'all know how many hoes done tried to hold this hoe up. Talk to you, boy. What's up? Press, 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 press. Craig is in the press. Variety's on the phone. I'm telling them shit I've been knowing. Cause this what I do. Cause I'm about that life. History's on my mind. And it's in my sights. What's up? What's up, everybody? What's up? What's up? Everybody, 21st show, legal now, 21st show, I'm legal now, hey, 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 what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, you know, it's the 21st show, and I was gonna drink, I was gonna like, um, do a Watch What Happens Live, do an Andy Cohen thing, and have myself a little cocktail while I, um, for the 21st show, but then I was like, you know, I'm crazy enough sounding as it is, y'all don't need to hear me, um, you know, slurring drunk, but anyway, um, welcome to Craig's Pop Life, a black gay excursion into pop culture. I'm your host, Craig Seymour, you know me, I've been writing about pop culture for more than 20 years now, you can read some of my music writing at rnbeing.com. I'm also an author who has written a number of books, the biography, Luther, The Life and Longing of Luther Vandross, my memoir about being a grad school stripper hoe, All I Could Bear, My Life in the Stripper Clubs of Gay Washington, D.C., my novel about three generations of black gay men looking for that good love, Who's Your Daddy?, and my forthcoming the life special, The Life and Art of Janet Jackson, which I will be talking about very shortly because I said last week I'm going to give y'all an update. So this week I'm going to give y'all an update. But just want to make sure you also know I have a website where you can find links to all the songs I talk about and the other stuff I discuss on the show and other shows. It's easy to remember. It's craigspoplife.com. And I have an Amazon shop where I put all the books that I discuss on the podcast, other important stuff, my favorite hot sauces, my favorite novels, my favorite this and that. The um, shop now features a whole section for Janet Jackson vinyl because, you know, she's reissuing all the classic, many of the classic albums on vinyl. So you can find them all in one place right there. Get your orders on and everything along with some classic vinyl that I put in the shop. So all of that good stuff is at on my Amazon shop. And that's also easy to remember. It's amazon.com slash shop slash Craig's pop life. So like I said, I was going to give y'all an update on the book. Um, cause I know y'all like this book was supposed to come out in the springtime. This motherfucker done dragged us into a whole nother season. And we don't know what's on with the, up with the book. Some of us had pre-ordered and had it canceled. Like, what is going on? Is this motherfucker writing the book? Is the book coming out? Like, what, what? So I hear you. I understand the, um, you know, emotions. I understand where you're coming from. So here we go. Okay. Basically. When I thought of the idea to do this book, it was late last year. It was right around the time that she was finally, um, 
you know, getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I was thinking about the book like it would consist of some essays and um, the complete never be seen, never be seen, never seen before transcripts of my interviews with with her from my Vibe magazine um, cover stories in 2001 and 2006. So I thought that'd be a nice little Janet Reach. You know, you get your little essays. You're like, oh, is this, you know, about different themes and stuff like that? And then you get the whole transcript. So you finally have the entire conversations. I know a lot of you all have listened to them. But, you know, it even me, you know, having... Shit, I was in the room, and then I also have heard the playback. But even reading it, you know, you do get some different things, and different things do jump out. So, you know, it's so it's it's interesting. And I was planning to kick this all out while I was laying up, listening to Christmas music, drinking eggnog. I thought this would be something I would just do on the side. You know, ain't nothing on TV around um, Christmas time. It's only but so many Christmas movies I like. You know what I mean? So this extra time. But then two things happen. Um, Maybe it's just two things, you know. Just shit happened because I think I I stopped numbering, so I'm not gonna say two things. I'm gonna say shit happened. Now here is the assorted shit, okay? And not necessarily, and not I shouldn't say shit happened, except in the just general term of shit happens. But like it's not bad stuff. It's just things that happen along the way of the creative process. And I'm sure anybody who's you know, embarked on some sort of long-term creative process, whether it's a long-term project in school or a dissertation or a thesis or just some shit you're doing at work, you know, in the course of doing like a long-term project, stuff can happen that might change, you know, your direction. It might change a little bit about um, particularly how long it's going to take you to do it. So in this particular case, um, I got the interviews back from the transcription service. You know, that's something I did. I didn't do that myself. I just sent that out thinking, oh, easy breezy. I'll just throw money at it and um, that problem will be solved. Well, um, the transcripts as I got back, they just really – I feel bad at saying they were effed up because – that makes it sound like the people didn't really do their work. And, and I mean, you know, they were transcribed. It's just in a conversation. And y'all know how I talk, you know. So in a conversation and stuff, just a casual conversation, and you're trying – and I'm trying to relay that, you know, the um, specifics of the conversation and the slang and all that kind of stuff. It just was not readable. Like I had to go through it word by word, and that took forever, because basically what I had to do is I had to take the transcription, and while I was reading the transcription word for word, I had to simultaneously play the audio just to make sure everything was right. And, you know, just things like pauses and everything, just just so that the um, that it read in the way that it came across. And that was much more difficult than I'd ever expected. It took much more time. It took me about six weeks to go through both of them. Because y'all have listened. I know a lot of y'all listen to them. You know how long they are. So that took a long time. Um, so that was completely unexpected because I had really thought that I would get the transcripts back. I'd be able to give them a quick weekend read, you know, with my feet up on the couch, watching Netflix in the background. It'd be real, you know, just not a big deal. But it ended up being a very big, time-consuming deal. Um, it was really tedious and exhausting. But ultimately, I'm really happy with the way it turned out, and I think you will be too. They're very, very readable. And like I said, you really, even if you've listened to them, you really get a different experience um, reading them. So I think 
you all will really enjoy that, so I can't wait to get a chance to see those. And so that was the first big setback. That was my first big, hey, this is all, this you've been on a lot, boy. Like, this is more than you thought it was going to be. And it also took up that good time that I thought I was going to be kind of writing as opposed to, you know, reading a transcript and listening along to the transcript. So now in terms of the essays, those were all going to be based on thoughts that I had about very specific Janet albums and just, you know, themes in her work, like sexuality and spirituality. A lot of the stuff I'd already written draft notes about in the past, and a lot of these ideas informed some of the questions that I asked her went during our interviews, but because those cover stories ran as Q&As, I didn't really have the space to fully articulate the ideas. So this was going to be my chance to like, you know, here's your chance, bitch. You can finally say all that you want to say about Janet. And I was really excited about it just to get these thoughts um, out there. Now, in the process of doing that, I went back through and read a lot of older Janet interviews. I mean, I was finding stuff I ain't never seen, like international stuff, um, a lot of stuff that was before the Control era, or she did a lot of press internationally right when Control came out, and a lot of that stuff I had never seen the bulk of it. So there was just a lot, a lot. And um what I found from that, I mean, reading all these interviews, is that it really helped paint a picture of the ways that she's changed since becoming a superstar in her own right, and also the ways that she say, stayed, has stayed the same. Like, it was just really fascinating to read something from, let's say, 86, and it being very similar to something that she said in 06 or 16. Do you know what I mean? Um and also, you know, if it had different, if she had said one thing and then certain things she said differently or certain things didn't play out in life the way maybe she thought earlier in her career, all of that stuff I found really, really um, fascinating. And the other thing I found fascinating going through the interviews is just going through, you. I really got a sense, like all this stuff I knew, but I just really got a sense of the development of her political consciousness and her social awareness and how she kind of transitioned from being concerned with the personal emancipation on control. Um, and then over the course of her career, she just became much more involved in the struggle for others in terms of black rights, black women's rights, women's rights in general, LGBT issues, all that stuff. And it was just really interesting to sort of see this development of consciousness in her own words in a way that I had never experienced before. Because if you think about it, it's like when you read a new Janet interview for a new era, you kind of read that and you remember the old stuff, but you're not necessarily reading. You don't go back and it's not like you are binge watching interviews. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily like you go back and know all of that stuff. So, but reading it all at the same time was a really fascinating experience and really allowed me to, again, um, understand her growth in her own words. So all of this was really, really interesting. And um, I was really excited about it, but it wasn't necessarily the book that I had initially um, wanted to write because these were just like sort of short essays about very specific things. It wasn't really about – and the essays were going to – 
through the essays, you were going to get a sense of her career, but it wasn't really like it was going to be chronological. I mean, it was going to be chronological, but she just wasn't necessarily going to be comprehensive in covering her whole expansive journey. It was going to be more thematic. Like I said, different themes, different albums, and things of that nature. Um, You know, but basically, like as a metaphor, like I was trying to cook up some essays, do you know what I mean? And the um, interview little pieces were going to be like the Lowry seasoning. You know what I'm saying? I was just going to sprinkle it. Just sprinkle it, you know, (laughs) before I cooked it and maybe just throw some more seasoning on, you know, right after it's done or something like that. That's the way I was really thinking of the interviews. I wasn't trying to marinate shit. Do you know what I'm saying? I ain't have the time. I wasn't trying to, you know, put the seasoning in, make a marinade and, and let it you know, sit for a while. Maybe you put it in the refrigerator, cover it, and then you come back to it. That wasn't really what I was trying to do with the book because I was trying to do it very, very quickly. Um, but the more I continued on the original path of the essays, the less satisfied I was because I just felt like I had sort of unexpectedly come upon a bigger and in many ways kind of more important and more expansive story. And I was mad as a motherfucker. Like, I was telling God, I was like, God, why are you doing this? Like, God, you know I got other stuff to do. Like, I don't have time to be spent. God, please, can't I just... This was really supposed to just be a kind of a little quick, discreet project that I was just going to put out for the Jan fam. We're going to be cool, you know, whatever. We could discuss it. Blah, blah, blah. I wasn't really trying to, like, bleed for this, you know, really. But I already had in terms of the transcripts, you know, that was already much more than I had expected. And then now it's kind of like I uncovered all of this stuff and sort of a story I knew but kind of told in a different way, revealed to me in a different way. So, like I said, I was mad at God for a minute. I was like, God, why you have to do me like this? I mean, you could have just told me in advance that this was going to be bigger and maybe I should put it off for another time in my life or something like that, but you ain't have to have me down the road. So I'm so far in it that I can't turn back, but now it's so much bigger. So me and God talk like that, you know, but, um, like I said, I was really heated for a while about that. Um, that I found myself in the middle of a much bigger project than I had imagined. Um, I still wanted to say everything that I said in the essays, but, I felt like that would come across better in the context of the larger story. So that was about a week to two weeks when I was just mad. I was just like, ugh. Like, and just feeling exhausted and overwhelmed and everything. And just, you know, like I was working and stuff. But it was I was really kind of tight about the idea that what I really needed to do was much more than what I had initially intended to do. And I'm sure everybody's had that experience. Everybody's had that experience of like, you know, I thought I was just going to get by doing this, but I really, really should do all of this. This is going to make it right. And, you know, I don't want to do it, but that's really the way that it should be done if it's done right. So it was one of those kind of moments. And so um, the problem was expand you know i had planned to knock this out like i said over the winter holidays when things are kind of slow ain't nothing really on tv um you know, i don't have a lot of other projects coming in so i thought it was gonna be a wrap by the early months of the year but now i was faced with um because it was taking me much longer you know especially after the transcriptions and then the idea of doing something a little bit more comprehensive i was now juggling the janet book 
with all the other stuff that I had to do to pay the bills because ain't nobody trying to be evicted over Janet as much as I love her. Do you know what I'm saying? So I had other stuff to do because the Janet wasn't yet bringing in no coin, but I was knee deep, probably waist deep at this point in the project. So that slowed it down a considerable bit just because the time that I had to spend on it wasn't as concentrated and focused as it was before because I was doing other stuff. Um, but then another thing happened. Um, I was mad at God about this again. I was like, why couldn't you just, God, if you had told me this, if you had given me this revelation like six weeks earlier, it would have been so much easier. I don't know why you had to, I don't know what you was doing. I don't know who else needed your attention, but like, I love you. You know, you're responsible for it all, but you really could have told me this a while. It would have made shit like uh, that much easier. So let me give y'all some context. Okay, so most listeners know that I wrote a Luther Vandross biography. If you don't, I guess it's because you came in halfway in the middle of the show because I just said that at the beginning of the show. So anyway, you know, that's what I, something I have done. Now, if you have a copy of the book, first of all, thank you. Um, second of all, if you look in the back of the book, you'll find a hella long bibliography. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on of every source that I used in writing the Luther Vandross book. So it's all there, right? Um, however, if you're reading the book and you look at an individual quote or a piece of information or something like that in the body of the text, you won't be able to tell exactly where I got it from. And I have to take a break to get a sip of my good iced tea. Y'all know I'm out of Red Bull. I always have Red Bull when I do the show because I need it for the energy. So I'm drinking me a good um, Gold Peak Diet Iced Tea. So excuse me for a moment. So anyway, like I said, the Luther bibliography is mad long, but... If there are no attributions in the text because I was on basically um, – at that point, I was on a make-or-break contractual deadline to finish the Luther book in a certain period of time. So I had no time to do nothing extra. You know, it's like, hey, I'm telling y'all where all this stuff is, but I can't – you know, I just, I just didn't have time. It was contractual. Um, and I always plan to go back to insert all the specific attributions Especially when I updated the book. Like, that was the plan. It was like, I was going to update the book, and I'm going to go back and, you know, show you where all these quotes came from and stuff. Just so that people in the future, you know, if you know, scholars, you know, might want to know where specific – or somebody might just need to find – somebody might just want to read that particular article because they like that quote, so they want the more context. You know, I just thought it was important to have it in there. But after I finished all writing the update and all that kind of stuff – I, and I realized all it would entail to go back and find where I got all of those quotes, even though it was all listed in the bibliography. I realized there ain't no way in the world that I would ever have the time or energy to do all that. Like, I, I just couldn't do it. So I put it out, again, the updated version, just as is with the bibliography. But again, you don't know where the specific quotes come from. Um, and part of that was that at that point... I had given all of my research away, um, not given away, but I donated it to um, the Archives of African American Music and Culture at Indiana University. So if you're ever in Bloomington, Indiana, 
just go. You can ask for the Craig Seymour collection, bitch. You can just go right up. Go. I'm sure I'm been, but I'm sure there's a counter. Somebody say, "Hey, I want to see the Craig Seymour collection," and they'll give you all my loot and stuff if you want to go through it and everything like that. Feel free. Take me. Take us picture though. Take a little snapshot so I have it and and send it to me. Um, you get everything you need. So. That was the particular problem. Is like I tried to find the quotes, and I didn't even have all the research right there. So it just really, really couldn't um, be done for Luther. So this was kind of in the back of my mind while I was working on the Janet project. And one day I just stopped and said, you know, if I don't stop now and attribute every single quote while the research is still right in front of me, I ain't never going to do it. Because I knew that I never did it with Luther and I'm never going to go back and do it with Luther. So, again, like I said, me and Guy had some words because I wish I'd had that idea before I ever started the project. It would have made it a lot easier. But now I was already kind of in the project. So I had to go back and find where I got the quotes. Of course, it wasn't as difficult because the information was right there and everything, but I wanted the attributions. Again, this was not just for um, scholars to want to find out, you know, to research something in the future or whatever, but I was also thinking just about my Jan fam, brothers and sisters, and just like, I knew people were going to be like, well, where was that quote from? Because I know y'all, my Jan fam people, I know y'all know your Janet interviews and stuff like that, so I know if I found something that was you know, not readily known, and you read a quote, you'd be like, where'd that come from? You know, and now you'll be able to find out so you can read it on your own, go on eBay, buy a copy of the magazine or whatever you do. So um, that was the last thing that I had ever wanted to do, to stop in the middle of what I was doing and go back to the beginning to document all these sources. But I thought it was important. So now there's going to be, a, in addition to the bibliography, there'll be an endnote section where you can directly see where I'm getting all of my information. Now, of course, that took forever to go back, and then I hadn't even gotten to the end of the book yet. So, you know, I'm doing this all this week after week passes, and then finally after I found all the quotes again, you know, I finally got back to work moving forward, and again, I had to juggle writing the Janet book with doing a bunch of other stuff, again, so that the landlord ain't put my stuff out on the street, and the good loan company doesn't, um, you know, roll up and put my Honda Fit on the back of a tow truck, because I like my car, it's cute, and so I just didn't want that to happen, so I had to take other, do other things that were going to bring in some money. So at this point, you're probably like, now, why are you telling all this? We've heard all this. What is the status of the project now? Okay, here we go. Now I'm very much, I'm writing and I'm very much into the later albums. Of course, it's still a little bit, you know, if you're just writing and not putting and just not sourcing everything, that goes a lot quicker than if you're writing and making sure that you're sourcing everything. So just even the writing project, the writing process is taking a little bit longer than my usual process. But um, like I said, I'm into the later albums. And more important, I've blocked off the next two weeks just to focus on the Janet book. So that is a luxury that I have not had since 
last year, the end of last year, when I started working on it. So other than just keeping up with the podcast, that's all I'm going to be doing. Um, that doesn't mean I want y'all to be, you know, all in my business. If you happen to see me on IG or if you happen to see me on Twitter, I don't need y'all necessarily be, why aren't you writing on the Luther book? I mean, why aren't you writing Janet books? You should, why are you commenting on this? You need to be writing. Don't George Martin me, you know, because sometimes you just need a break. And sometimes I've been working. I'm just like, okay. Let me just see what folks are doing. And then, now if you see me on the, for hours on hours and end, then maybe, I, yeah, maybe say something. Maybe say, you know, this is a cute, I'm, it's cute you posted this video of this SWV remix, but we would really prefer if you would just take the time and be back on the Janet book. And I won't be mad at that. Okay. Um, so that's where I am now. Like I said, I'm about to go into two weeks of nonstop Janet. And then to be fully transparent, I just wanted y'all to let you know, I just wanted to let you know like what's going to happen after I actually fully, fully finish. Then I'm probably going to take about a week or two just in the editing process of just myself and um, people I'm working with just to edit, you know, the content. That'll probably take a week or two. And then I was going to send it to a copy editor for misspellings, commas, and shit. That will probably take another week. And then I'll have to proof the print version of it, which will probably take another week. So just figure once I completely finish writing, it'll be about another four to six weeks before it's actually out. Okay, so I'm not going to give any more potential dates um, at this point because I don't want to be unreliable. Craig. Oh, it's unreliable, Craig. He's writing another book. I guess it's going to be out sometimes. You know, I don't want to be that guy if I'm not already that guy, but I definitely don't want to fuel that. So I'm not going to say any more dates, but hopefully I can get really close to wrapping things up in the next two weeks and then I'll jump into the editing process. So. You know, you all have been so supportive of me. Just the response you all gave me just when the idea came out, just when I posted the cover, the love that y'all gave me for that means so much to me. And um, just really, you know, totally brightened my spirit and just made me feel inspired. And I just love y'all so much for doing that. So that's why I wanted to really just give y'all the real, real what's going on about this because um, you've just been so supportive and I appreciate it so much. And I really think that you're going to enjoy this more comprehensive look. Like I'm really, because, you know, obviously I'm as huge of a fan as anybody. And so part of these changes that I've been making, I always ask myself with whatever book I write, but I always ask myself, you know, if I wasn't writing this book, if I was a fan, if I was just reading this book, like what would I want? And that was partially the reason for going back and, you know, make sure I included this whole journey that I was discovering because I was like, well, that's what I would want, right? Because there's nothing like that out there. So yeah, it would be great to be able to experience, you know, how she talked about stuff during control and then how she talked, you know, it would be great to experience that in all one place because we don't really have something like that. So a lot of this was me coming from the standpoint of a fan and just being like, hell, this is what I want. I mean, and it is what I want. Like, I'm sure I will read it as a fan, not as a fan of my own writing, but just as a resource, just enjoying um, just the story of Janet. So um, that's what that's all about. So I think you all will really like it. Um, again, I thank you for your patience and support and 
you know, like I said, I'm working as hard as I can. I'm working as fast as I can. And for the next two weeks, that's the only thing I'm going to be working on. I'm actually not even at home. I'm kind of on a retreat. So it's all good. Um, So moving on to the pop culture of the week, as we do each week, I know a lot of folks are talking about this damn new Taylor Swift video. You need to calm down. I'm not saying you need to calm down about talking about the um, Taylor Swift video. I'm saying that's the name of the damn song. You need to calm down. You know, and in the video, it has all the cameos by all the high-profile gays and queers and drag queens and lesbians and gay allies. And, you know, it has the RuPaul's, it has the Ellen DeGeneres's, it has the Laverne Cox's, the Billy Porter's, the Alan Rapons, the Queer Eye guys, the Sierra's, the Ryan Reynolds. He's painting a picture of the Stonewall Inn for some reason. Well, I know why it runs. I know why the, the, a painting of the Stonewall Inn is in the damn video. I don't know why Ryan Reynolds is necessarily, you know, painting the. Um, the I mean, I like Deadpool as much as anybody else, but you get my point. And you know, a lot of the drag race queens are in it, and the pro, the video is executive produced by Tadra Hall. And child, I mean, all I'm attention, all white people. I know I have white listeners. I love you for listening. But attention, all white people, you definitely want to get you a black friend like Todd Call. Because I swear he be defending Taylor Swift and be up under her like I don't even know. Because I ain't the one. So if you're looking for a black, if you need a black friend to be like that with you, I'm sorry. I have a lot of white friends. I'm very supportive and I love my white friends. I ain't, go- I ain't like that. I will love you as a friend. I will support you. But I ain't issuing no black or gay passes. I'm not in that business. Um, I ain't throwing myself out there. If you do something fucked up or receive some criticism publicly, not that Negro. Just not. I'm not that Negro. Like I said, I'll support you. I'll advise you. I'll tell you, well, you know, you done fucked up. And the best way you could do it is just to say, well, oh, whatever. But, you know, I'll give you all the advice and stuff like that if you're my friend. But I ain't getting out there on my Twitter or on my social media and saying, you know, oh, I'm such a friend of this person. I know they're not this or this person. No, 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 not where I was raised. I'm not one of those jump in front of the bus to protect white people type of Negro. I'm just not. That's just not me. So if you need that from me, then I can't be your black friend. But if we just could be cool and I could just say, yeah, you fucked up. Yeah, maybe you could do this, but you just have to let... I can be that kind of friend. I can't be the, you know, put, throw myself in front of you like a damn bodyguard or something like that. I, I ain't that person. So, you know, but Taldrick stays defending Tay-Tay on social media, whether it's about the Kim Kanye thing or her politics, which until very recently were quite ambiguous, you know. And, I mean, this is my message to the 47% of white women who voted from Trump, I know initially people said it was 52%. It turns out that that wasn't quite accurate. But, you know, I'm glad y'all got yourselves together for the midterms. But I would have preferred if you had not voted for Trump or you had been more vocal for Hillary in 2016 when the block was really hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like I appreciate Taylor, whatever she's doing with the politics, this, that, supporting candidate. Do you, girl? But, like, you know, and it's great you're doing it now. And I really hope that you come through in 2020 
because the block's going to be hot again. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, Taylor's new political politicization, sorry, you know, is on trend. And I'm not saying that's a bad or anything like that. I'm not, I mean, whenever you come to a political consciousness, if that's something that's going to help people, I'm not really judging your journey. You know, if you're genuinely there, then fine. I'm glad you're there. Um, I'm not necessarily passing you a donut for it, but you know, welcome. Uh, and now for this new video, a lot of people have problems with it, thinking that she's jumping on the gay band rag wagon, especially now that it's corporate cool. You know, you're not going to lose no corporate sponsorship being gay supportive. In fact, you might get you one. You know what I mean? You might get you a Target sponsor where you can wear a rainbow shirt or what. You know, gay is opening corporate doors now. So that's not going to um, really damage your career. And then other people have criticized the video by just saying, well, shit, it's all about her. She's in the center of everything. She's, um, this one thing I didn't even realize, but when she's standing up there with all the drag race queens, I didn't realize that they were all dressed as other pop stars and kind of she's in the middle. As soon as somebody pointed out to me, it was obvious that, okay, there's Ari, there's, um, Beyonce, there's Cardi and whatever, but because none of the people really look like the people that they're portraying. It's just the outfits. I told it went by me the first um, time I saw it. But anyway, like I said, there have been a lot of criticism about her putting herself kind of all up in the middle of the mix. And The Onion ran this really hilarious headline. They said, Taylor Swift inspires teen to come out as straight woman needing to be at the center of gay rights narrative. <laughs> you know, so I definitely can see that criticism. I think that criticism is very valid. Um, but I guess the one thing I kept coming back to, and this is kind of inspired by this book I'm reading, which I'll talk about a little bit later. It comes out in October. It's wonderful, but I don't want to drag that all into Taylor Swift's mess. But it's easy to lose sight of how stuff like this Taylor, video, Taylor Swift video can affect somebody who has not come out yet or is in the very early stages of that process. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to look back, you know, my ass, you know, it's easy for me to look back and think, well, why would it, would anybody need this? But the point is people still need this kind of thing because there are people coming out every day. And one of the things that I always try to stay mindful of is that in the coming out process, one of the hardest things about that is just finding the right moment to bring the shit up because it's never a right, you know, that's not, there's never a right moment. There's never some general moment where somebody corrals the family. Okay, well, everybody, let's talk about their sexual orientation. Let's put it on the table. I don't know a situation where that ever happens. You know, so there's always that thing of like, when the fuck am I going to bring this up? And what is going to be the context? Because I remember for me, um, thinking about many, 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 many years ago, um, coming out happened after me, my father, and his girlfriend went to see the film version of Torch Song Trilogy with Harvey Firestein and Matthew Broderick. He'd asked Matthew Broderick in 1988, and I had just turned 20. Okay. And it wasn't really a big deal that we were seeing a gay film because this was back in the 70s, 80s. And it's hard for people to understand 
this now. But back then, I mean, people just kind of went to see films to be part of the cultural conversation. It wasn't so much like the blockbuster culture where you just went to see some big, you know, hard thing or some big superhero thing each weekend or something like that. It's like there were films, independent films, foreign films, all sorts of films, and they got very big coverage in the newspapers. You know, it was very important, the films that were well-reviewed. And if something got a lot of reviews and had a buzz, people just generally wanted to see that film. Just And people, like now how people will talk about Game of Thrones or they'll talk about the TV shows that they're watching. That's just kind of the way that people would talk about um, films back in the day. So just like now people watch Pose and stuff. They're not necessarily gay or anything like that, but it's just part of the larger cultural conversation. That's the way people would see maybe a gay film back in the day. It wasn't that big. It was just kind of like, I'm seeing this to watch this experience um, because that's what film is for. So we went to see it and, um, and it was really nothing for us to see like two or three films in a weekend. So it really was not that big of a deal that it was a gay film. I don't even really remember the specifics of the film, but somewhere on the ride home, you know, we were just talking about it because that was also an important part of the film going experience is to kind of talk about the film experience back then is to talk about what went on in the film. People don't do that so much anymore because like how much can you say after whatever? I mean, it's probably a lot you could say after Endgame or something really good, but other films it's like, okay, this happened. What we going to eat? Um, so anyway, I remember by the ride back home, we were talking, talking, talking. Sorry, y'all, I need another sip of my iced tea. Okay. And I know at some point along the ride, my father asked me something to the effect of, had I ever thought that I might be bi or something like that? You know, one of those kind of back, oh, have you ever had this feeling, you know, that you might be by. And I know a lot of parents, you know, they, they need to, when they're on the coming out, when they're on the acceptance train, they need to make that bisexual stop. You know what I mean? That that's easier initially for them to accept as opposed to just embracing full-blown faggotry, you know, right off the bat. They need that little bi stop, you know, to get a little refresher to catch their, you know, to catch their breath before they move on to all the way to gay town. You know what I'm saying? So we were having this discussion. It went on and on. It was just a really calm discussion. It wasn't heated. It was just, a, it was just like I said, a discussion of the way we would discuss films anyway. But this just happened to be a film about sexuality. And then it just happened to, he just happened to ask in the course of that. I mean, I'm sure he had his suspicions. That's the fucking reason he was asking in the first place. But in the course of this conversation, he was asking, had I ever thought I was bi? And, you know, I was pontificating on and on, just kind of being very deflective and just talking about, you know, what little, my little sophomore college, at, well, I don't know what I was in college because I dropped out of high school and then took some time off. And then I flunked out my first year in college and then my second year at another school. And then finally I went back to school at University of Maryland. So I don't know when, what 
I might have been a damn freshman credit wise, even though I might have been going to school off and on for a num- couple of years at that point. But anyway, um, I was just pontificating about what I knew. Well, you know, the complex nature of sec- human sexuality and so on and so forth. And, you know, some people think I probably brought the Kinsey scale in there. You know, some people think that there's a scale and we're all on the continuum. And, and you know, I was just talking like I was doing a goddamn TED talk in the backseat, you know, just talk sexuality in general and how we think about things and you know and these are social constructs you know i was just doing it yeah (laughs) so that went on and on with me being all theoretical with the situation but finally at some point that night you know i think i said something i said this the most softest way i said you know i might hey i might even be by you know what i mean i mean human sexual human sexuality is and on the continuum hey i might be by you know what i mean making it sound very like you know, shoo, it's, it's, it's a continuum. I don't know. We have these thoughts. I'm an open-minded person, you know. I'm a, I'm a guy of the 80s, you know. I'm down with stuff. So, yeah, maybe I am. You know, kind of on that tip. Not really making no declaration. Not really planting a rainbow flag in the sand. But just, you know, hey. So, anyway, um, it wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, it was really kind of like, you know, like a possibility, like, hey, I might be by, you know, I might spend junior year abroad, you know, I mean, it was an idea, it was a thought, there wasn't really no permanence to it. Uh, and that's the way it kind of stayed with him, but of course, that wasn't the reality that I was living in my head, you know what I mean? It was a somewhat theoretical, because I had never had sex, or any more than just a heartbreaking crush on my straight best friend in high school. I know that's basic bitch shit, but that's the truth. Um, you know, I hadn't so much as touched a guy in a kind of sexual way or something like that. So to that degree, yeah, the shit was um theoretical. And I mean, I knew for sure that I was gay, but I've had a lot of conversations with other gay men about coming out and stuff like that. And some people talk about like having a first sexual experience or something like that. Or really having that lust being the, that desire for other guys being kind of the driving component. And surprise, surprise, cause you know, everybody, whatever, thinks I'm, you know, so out there sexually and stuff like that. But surprise, my sort of being drawn, knowing that I was gay really did not, was not driven by sexuality. I mean, sure, it had a sexual component. I mean, I'd been fapping to, Scott Madsen, the Solaflex guy, ever since I could get my dick hard, you know. So, yeah, sex was always in the mix. But for me, it was really more of an emotional connection. I mean, I really just always had this kind of, like, idea of being with the guy and having a relationship that felt like, um, really like an extension of friendship. Like, that it, That was almost kind of like a dream. And I remember the first time I saw the film um, Morris – that was about like a year earlier. That was about 87, I think. I saw the film Morris, and I also read the book by Ian Forrester. And that was the first – I was like, yes, this is exactly it. This is exactly how I feel, and this is exactly the kind of relationship that I want. The relationship, for those who've seen it or read it, the relationship between Morris and Scudder. I'm like, that is what I felt for my whole life. You know, it, it finally – put into words and I think that's just such a great experience when a piece of art can do that and I think a lot of people have had that experience with something or another 
And that's probably why Morris is still one of my favorite films, one of my favorite novels, and certainly my favorite romance of all time. So, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, I highly recommend it. Um, so anyway, so later that night, after the night that we saw Torch Song Trilogy, I wrote my father a note on a legal pad. I don't know where I, I mean, my, my mother was in law school growing up, so I mean, I guess maybe that's where I got my thing for legal pads. I don't know where I got my thing, love for legal pads, but I still write everything I do on legal pads now, even all my books since the Janet on a legal pad. So, um, I wrote this note to my father on a legal pad and I just said something to the effect of, hey, I've given this some thought and I actually think I am gay. Like, you know, on second thought, Remember that, Bob? I actually am gay, you know. And it didn't seem important at the time to make the distinction that the thought I'd given it hadn't just been in the few hours since the movie or since I told him I was maybe bi, but the thought that I've been having, you know, for most of my life. And, um, yeah, but like I said, I just, like this, some epiphany I just had. No, this was in the works, but... I told him that, and we talked about it when he came home at the end of the next day, when he came up for work at the end of the day. Not the next day, just the day I left the note. Um, and, I mean, it was all good. I mean, I had to hear all the stuff about, you know, the fear of AIDS and, oh, my God. And then this used to be a popular one, like, in the 80s and 70s, from what I've heard from friends. I don't know if if um, you if gays, if coming out in the 90s and the millennials, if you still get that, but I got the whole, well, you know, I don't know one happy gay person in my life. All the gay people I know are miserable and stuff. That used to be a real common um, thing for people to say. So I don't know if that's still part of the greatest hits or if that has been, you know, regulated to a classic, to an oldie, <laughs> you know, a golden oldie or whatever. But, you know, I definitely got that. Uh, so all of that is just to say, uh, my point is that this ridiculous Taylor Swift video, I'm sure that it will enable some kid to begin to have that conversation about coming out. And for that reason, I'm okay with it. I know it ain't for me. I don't ever have to look at it again. But to the extent that it's, I know it's going to help somebody else. Do you know what I mean? For all of the things that I might have, for the things that might irritate me, I know it's going to help some kids. So for that reason, I'm cool with it. My bigger issue with the video is just, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, why are y'all in a trailer park? Like, seriously, why are y'all in a trailer park? Like, is glamorizing poverty, like, is that cool now? Like, is that what we're doing? I mean, because Taylor Swift has multiple multi-million dollar homes, okay? Why is she with the gays in a trailer park? Like, why we can't be neighbors in her Tribeca penthouse? That's what I, yeah, that's what I would like. You know what I mean? Or her Rhode Island mansion that overlooks the ocean where she always has her July 4th parties. I mean, that's coming up. Is she inviting the gays to that? Is she inviting gays to July 4th? Why? I just can't even understand what was the point of the trailer park. It would have been even more subversive if you had all the gay people maybe in like a suburban cul-de-sac to kind of critique the, um, notion of the suburban um of the suburbs being associated with traditional family values and all that kind of stuff but to to put marginalized people in an economically marginalized place i just don't know what the thinking was but around that behind that i mean i'm sure her good judy todrick would have 
some justification for it for me, you know, so I'm sure that's whatever. But that's my issue with it. And I know some people would go, well, you like Beyonce so much. What do you think about Beyonce's party? That's in the trailer park. And here's where I would say it's the big difference. There is a huge difference between glamorizing poverty and even making pot turning poverty into sort of a camp expression and trying to f- use your stardom to shine a spotlight on the beauty in the hood which often does go unrecognized and i feel like um beyonce with party or even more so with the no angel video that's kind of what she's doing she's using her light to show the beauty of um people that often don't get acknowledged as having beauty. That ain't the same thing as having, you know, this big glamorous technicolor whatever in a trailer park featuring all of these multimillionaire celebrity gays. You know what I mean? Like that's So that's where if I'm getting down to my biggest criticism, it's that glamorization of poverty and the whole association of gay people with the margins and actually putting us in the margins like what what was she thinking you know but like i say and you know also with that in the contrast to beyonce's i think that when you are making a self-consciously political statement you open yourself up to more scrutiny right beyonce wasn't party was about partying you know what i'm saying like that wasn't about that no angel was it soliciting for glad or black lives matter or anything at the end of those videos those were just artistic statements she's making a very specific statement about accepting gay people and we in the trailer park so whatever um that's what i would say to her um but like i said todrick would probably jump in my way before I even ever got the chance to ask. So that probably will not happen. But anyway, uh, and if I was Todrick's friend, you know, <laughs> same with, I would just say, you know, stop putting yourself out there and running up all under this white woman. You look crazy. Like there's a difference between being a friend to somebody and looking like the squad mascot. I mean, that's just my particular opinion. Um, People can do what they want to do, but that's just the the perception that I get from the situation. And if you feel like, why am I throwing shade on the situation? It's because of that, because I don't like seeing black gay men looking like they the mascot for a white woman. That, yes, does that bug me? Yes, it does. I'm not saying anything about Todrick personally. I don't know anything about him that much about him personally. I don't even know that much about him professionally. I just know basically how the most I know about him is from the drag race appearances and how he's out there defending Taylor Swift, you know, with the Kim and Kanye stuff and with, um, you know, about her politics and stuff like that. So that's all I know. And then now he's all up in the video. So that's all I know. And I'm just reacting to that. I'm not saying anything about him personally. I don't, you know, I'm just saying as a black gay man, watching a black, watching the representation of a black gay man in popular culture, in these videos, on social media. That's the response that I have to it. But again, it ain't personal. I'm just saying. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk about this week is this new article I'm featured in. I'm in Variety, y'all. A, a trade ho. Uh, I'm That's different from just being in your regular newspaper. I'm up in the trades, okay? Um, 
And this article is called What Happened to the Black Queer Music Revolution That Frank Ocean Almost Started. And it's written by the homie Jeremy Helliger. And I'll put the link on my website. And one of the things he mentions is that there have been, while there haven't been a whole lot of black gay men who've been, who've been out there and been successful following Frank Ocean coming out, that there have been some openly, some black female openly gay and bisexual artists like Janelle Monet and, um, Kalani. And then I'm quoted as follows. It says, I say, said, um, it doesn't surprise me that black women are leading the way when it comes to music. Janet Jackson was one of the first black artists to talk about issues of sexuality within a pop-slash-R&B context on 1997's The Velvet Rope. The women are leading, and the men will soon follow along. So that's what I had to say in the article. But to y'all, I just wanted to give y'all a little bit more context, especially in, in terms of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks in terms of the development of um, the black gay movement and the black gay kind of cultural movement. And I was really talking about, but yeah, you know, and there's only so much you can put in an article. So I'm not, this is not a criticism at all. I'm just giving it to y'all straight just because I know y'all will know what I'm talking about. But I was really talking about how um, black lesbian writers like Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde inspired black gay authors like Joseph Beam and Essex Hemphill to do their work. Because, you know, Joseph Beam was very much following in the tradition of what Barbara Smith was doing and very much following in the tradition of these anthologies of of lesbian women of color in order to have the idea to do In the Life, which was an anthology of black gay writing. So that's what I mean by um, artist culturally, black gay men have very much been inspired by um, black lesbians. And so I was talking about that really um, – I was thinking about how black women have led the way in the form of these black gay expressions. So it doesn't surprise me that the same thing is happening in music. My point was really much bigger than music. I was – so that's – like I said, it's not like – I don't feel like I, it's like a clarification thing or anything like that. I'm just giving you all more context because I know – We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks, and I just want to say that that was my larger point. I was kind of like, well, you know, Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde inspired Joseph Beeman as example, so it doesn't surprise me that maybe Janelle Monet and Kalani will inspire some other people, to, some black gay men, to follow in that path. That's all that was. Um, and as far as just the question of is there going to be a black gay superstar, like, yeah, I just feel like. It always has to be organic. It always has to be about the music. It's going to come from somewhere we don't expect. But certain things, like, I feel if Khalid came out, I don't really feel like anybody would give a shit. You know, he would still be Khalid. And I just think that the context is there, and it's just going to be something that is very organic. But I don't feel like the obstacles are as much in place as they may have been let's say in the 90s and the 2000s when really because you know if you think about it hip-hop really defined black masculinity for the past several decades you know so even r&b singers 
were kind of put against the standard of black masculinity that was set by hip-hop. That's why we had the R&B thugs of the 90s. Do you know what I mean? That's why that was that whole kind of look. Um, in the 2000s, it's kind of the same thing. You know, hip-hop defined the popular culture image of black mascul- masculinity in music. But now, I think we just have a much more broader array of what black masculinity looks like within the popular sphere. It's, I mean, Drake gets a lot of criticism, but Drake is really very multi-layered in his expressions of masculinity. So I feel that, and that's not even to say Drake, but also Young Thug and the way that he dresses. And so I think that there's just a lot of possibility to be different, including being queer in um, the sort of space of Black popular culture that didn't necessarily exist even 10 years ago. So I am very optimistic about that. Um, so in any way, as we, again, I've been running my mouth for too long about stuff and I didn't get to all of the things that I wanted to talk about. But I really just want to make sure that everybody has had a chance to watch or plans to watch Black Godfather about the great Clarence Avant. It's a portrait of a spectacular Black man who ex- succeeded against all sorts of obstacles that could have been put against him, and he dedicated his life to nurturing and protecting Black creativity and to seeing that we had a Black political future. So that's just extensive viewing. I mean, it was so eye-opening to me because I really, I knew Clarence Avant and been known Clarence Avant, but primarily through music and knowing um, and him being the um, founder of Taboo Records and giving us all the great the SOS bands and stuff, and him really being a mentor to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and just that role. And I just always knew that he was always in the mix. Like if anybody was talking about who their mentor was or who gave them advice or who helped them in a situation, situation Clarence Avon's name always came up. But to be able to see his entire story and even more of what he was doing and how he expanded his reach into other areas and really went out of his way to help people that he didn't have to help. And they didn't a lot of times they didn't even know they needed help. Do you know what I mean? But he went out of his way. And that's inspiring. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's part of the person that that's really, you know, because sometimes... Sometimes you can hold it's easy to hold back on like reaching out to people and supporting them and everything because sometimes, especially in the social media age, it can sort of feel like clout chasing. It can kind of feel like you know, if you reach out to somebody, say, Oh, I really support your book. Oh, just let me know if I can do anything for you or something like that. I don't know, just in social media, sometimes that can come across as self serving, but I still risk it a lot of times because I just feel that you know. I've been in this game for a long time. I know a lot about kind of navigating the system. And I really know about, because it's it's not easy to be, I'm not going to try to say I was ever hot or anything like that in the industry, anything like that. But I'm just saying it's, it's, you can come to a point in your career where, you know, you're getting all the cover stories, you're doing this, you're getting the book deals and all this kind of stuff and everything like that. If you're in the if you're in the game for long enough, you might find that you come to a point where that stuff doesn't come quite as easy just because, you know, maybe you've aged out of it. Maybe just the types of stuff you were writing about 
isn't what's hot anymore. Maybe just the industry has changed and consolidating, so there are not as many opportunities as there once were. All of that kind of stuff. So I feel like I'm helpful to the extent of I can tell people how to keep on once you've not necessarily um, being supported by the mainstream. Or not even that necessarily being supported by the mainstream, but just kind of how to make the mainstream irrelevant and just be like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to write my Janet Jackson book. I don't give a good goddamn if a publishing company wants me to write a Janet Jackson book. I'm going to write a Janet Jackson book, and I know how to do that. Do you know what I mean? So to what is worse, I'd be reaching out to people. I'd be having conversations. Some people don't want to be having the conversation with me. That's cool because some people do. And, um, you know, that's the work. That's just the work that I feel that um, I'm additionally meant to do. You know, so I try to help as many as I can. Each one teach one, right? Um, I also wanted to say how much I love is in terms of – following up on last week just how much i loved the latest episode of pose worth it it way melt way way melt y'all know it's late it's 4 32 um it may well be my favorite episode of the series um so far i mean it was moving it was soulful and i like the way it got away from the heavy-handedness of the first episode and was just more character driven because one of the strengths of that show is that it's not just fueled by the spectacle of the ballroom, which it easily could be. It easily could be they were just giving us flash and dash and not giving us very um, complex characters, but they really do serve us complex characters. So I like when that the focus is on those characters. Shout out to Queen Janet Mock and her pin game. Her pin game is strong. Her mogul game is strong now because she just got this new deal with Netflix. So much respect and shout out to her and also shout out to the director of photography for the show um his name is andre bowden schwartz because i felt like this last episode of pose i felt like you could pause any moment any still in that you know just pause 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 and it looked like a fucking work of art you know especially those scenes where like electro was walking through the snm club and all that kind of, i mean but even the ballroom set everything was elevated in my sense um i don't know how many episodes that he's worked on i know that he wasn't working on last season so i'm really looking forward to watching his work because i just thought it was i was just overwhelmed by the beauty of it um same thing with euphoria euphoria are y'all watching that i really i don't know what i would say about the first episode like i really enjoyed the first episode i thought it was really lovely and beautiful i thought it was thought-provoking i thought zendaya was fantastic I'm kind of just, um, I don't think I've ever watched a show, or maybe there's never really been a show or just that really focuses on drug use. So that's just kind of interesting to me about how interested I'm going to be in that week after week. But um, certainly I was interested after the first show, so we'll see. So, okay, y'all, you know what time it is now. I am not too proud to beg. If y'all enjoyed the show, please take the time to subscribe and rate. Now, the rating thing, y'all don't got to write nothing. All you got to do is push those little stars and keep it moving. Like, I'm not trying to take up a lot of your day. I'm, I'm grateful for the time you've given me just to listen. I do not want you to, you know, I'm not trying to be that guy. But if you could just take that second if it takes a full second just to push one of them stars i'd prefer five but do you 
um, I would really, really appreciate it. So um, thank you in advance for that. And if you know a friend who might also like the podcast, please do me a favor and share it. Um, on a programming note, I'm going to do a special episode of my reactions from Sunday's BET Awards. So look forward to that on Monday morning. Be something to listen to on your good um, morning commute. And I also want to thank the sponsor of the show, The Girlish Podcast. Make sure you check that out. Because if you don't, my black ass probably won't get sponsored no more. So until next time, be cool, be kind, be creative. And in the words of my fave, be your damn self. <laughs> okay, love y'all. Bye.